With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation, creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. Yeah. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. Yeah. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. 
the faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Alright folks, thank you for joining us again for another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Palou, and uh, the opening song, a lot of people will ask uh, who does that song, and that is a uh, Christian rapper known by the name of Shy Lin. Shy Lin, that is S-H-A-I-L-I-N-N-E, and you can find him all over the web. He's... uh, Good, solid brother in the Lord and uh, makes great music. And uh, the theme of this show is Theology Matters. Uh, probably more than anything else in this world, more than, uh, more than money, more than politics, more than, uh, more than anything, even our own family. Uh, because how we view God is really uh, the most important thing about us. How we view God is going to determine how we view the world, how we view others. And so if we are off on our theology, uh, then we could have eternal consequences. So uh, with that being said, we need, to, uh, we need to make sure our theology is correct, when it's, especially when it comes to the issues of uh, the essentials. You know, we're going to disagree on... Certain issues, you have Presbyterians and Lutherans and Baptists, and, uh, you know, we're going to differ on some secondary or third-order issues, but when it comes to the essentials of the faith, the doctrine of the Trinity, the resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, these type of things, uh, we need to, uh, to know what these things are, and we need to stand uh, on them. So... That being said, I've uh, got a great show in store for everyone today. We are going to have uh, Robert Bowman on, and we are going to be looking at uh, a response he has done to one of Bart Ehrman's uh, newest books. And for those who don't know, Bart Ehrman is a, is a well-known New Testament scholar, teaches at uh, Chapel Hill, actually not far from where I am at, a couple hours away, I think. And... Uh, well, the man is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, he's a scholar. He uh, was was brought up in a Christian church. Uh, or not, yeah, I think he was brought up in a Christian church. But I know he went to uh, Wheaton, and I also know he went to Moody, two conservative Bible schools, studied under some of the best uh, Bible teachers, and uh, ended up walking away from the, from the Christian faith, became an agnostic. So we are going to be dealing with some of his attacks on the deity of Christ. And there's really, I don't think there's much, many better than Rob Bowman uh, to deal with things like the issue of the uh, doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. He's just an exceptional scholar. uh, And he's a really, uh, you know, I I don't know him personally, but the times we've interacted, he's just a really, really nice man. And I'm just honored Absolutely honored to have him on the show. So uh, let's do this. We've got about 20 minutes before he comes on. I, I recently wrote a blog post for my uh, church 
Clark Baptist uh, Church in Rock Hill. And I was asked to write the article on why apologetics, uh, especially for the, for the millennials. Why do we need apologetics today? So I'm going to read that article uh, to you guys. But before I do, I want to play this little opening clip from Richard Dawkins. And this is uh, discussing his book, The God Delusion. And I want, to, I want to play this clip, and I want you guys to kind of see a context as to why I think uh, we, we desperately need the church to get back to apologetics and the role of apologetics. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about what apologetics is and, and why we need it. But let me go ahead and play this clip uh, from the atheist Richard Dawkins. I think this was the trailer for the book uh, The God Delusion. issues human society faces today, religion remains one of the most divisive and destructive. I hope you find this film on it interesting. There are lots of people who have been brought up in some religion or other, are unhappy in it, don't believe it, or are worried about the evils that are done in its name. There are people who feel vague yearnings to leave their parents' religion and wish they could, but just don't realize that leaving is an option. I've written a book called The God Delusion, aimed at those people. The book inspired a short documentary series for Channel 4 on the dangers of religion called Root of All Evil. Now we've made a single film called The God Delusion from that series. The film explores a world increasingly polarized by religion, with the atrocities of 9-11 and 7-7 still raw memories. In America's Midwest and in Israel, it became apparent how prone otherwise sane people are to extremism once they indulge in faith, belief without evidence, when they give up reason. This film takes a hard look at the very concept of faith, how it behaves like a kind of brain virus infecting generations of young minds, how it perpetuates outdated and dubious moral values. Religion deserves to be scrutinized far more critically than it normally is. I feel passionately about this. If the film does just one thing, I hope it encourages people to start questioning why the strange, distorted mindset of religious faith should automatically demand, and usually receive, our society's respect. All right, so that was actually not his book. It was um, dealing with a, uh, I guess, one of the upcoming films that they have. But you see, Dawkins, um, he, 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 he doesn't get it. Dawkins thinks that people that uh, believe the existence of God are just deluded and silly and just don't get it. And uh, in a lot of ways, um, as I talk to Christians uh, all the time, uh, I, I understand a little bit of why there are, there, why there is some frustration uh, coming from people like Dawkins, uh, because we have kind of moved into this, as, as R.C. Sproul would say, one of the most anti-intellectual eras uh, 
ever, probably in, in history. And unfortunately, uh, the church has played a big part of that. Within the last uh, 150, 200 years, we've really seen a uh, backing away from a intellectual, rigorous defense of the, of the Christian faith. Now, up till, you know, 1,800 years ago or so, first 1,800 years, uh, you know, the church had some of the most brightest minds uh, ever to, to walk the face of this earth. Men like St. Augustine and St. Anselm and Thomas Aquinas, uh, brilliant, brilliant men, and uh, several, several others. So I wrote this blog in, uh, kind of as to why we need apologetics. So I'll just go ahead and read it and kind of talk as we go through it. Susie was brought up in a Christian home. Her father was a pastor and instilled in her the need to read the Bible and memorize scripture. As a child, Susie excelled in her Sunday school class and won many awards. As Susie got older, she began learning uh, things in her high school science classes that caused her great distress. Bible is the word of God. Where does science fit in? She was being taught that the universe came into existence through natural processes alone and that the origin of life was really just a freak accident. What about cavemen? and the transitional forms in the fossil record. Are we really just a product of chance and natural processes? These issues weighed heavily on Susie, yet she did not want to tell her dad that she was having some serious doubts, as science seemed incompatible with what she had been taught in her Sunday school class growing up. Things got worse when she entered her first semester of college second class of the week was Intro to Philosophy. She was shaken at the core when the professor boldly claimed that God was dead. Throughout the semester, and professor, uh, the professor not only attacked the existence of God, but also taught that the Bible could not be the Word of God because it was filled with contradictions. Susie, shaken to her core, came home at Christmas break and told her parents that she had abandoned her faith because science and philosophy had demonstrated that God did not exist and that the Bible was not his word. Her dad was heartbroken, but was not able to counter the arguments Susie had learned in school. He thought to himself, where did I go wrong? Susie was brought up in the church, memorized scripture, went to VBS every year. How could this happen? Sadly, the scenario plays out in many homes every year. It is estimated that three out of four teens who grow, uh, grew up in a Christian home walk away from the faith that they were brought up in. How do we respond? Sadly, many churches do not have to st- know how to stop the bleeding. Now, let me, uh, let me interject again real quick. Uh, this scenario, as I write it out, uh, is something that happens, I know for a fact, all the time, every year. I am a uh, chapter director for Ratio Christi, which is an apologetics ministry on the college campus. And we are at Winthrop University. It's one of the most liberal colleges in the Carolinas. I'm not saying it's a bad college. I think it's for everything I've, I've seen, it's nothing but, uh, but wonderful to, to us. Uh, but uh, it is very hostile to the Christian worldview. 
And so um, I see this stuff happen with 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 people. Uh, I was uh, I was very close to being Susie myself. I grew up in a in a Christian home. My father was a uh, pastor of an assemblies uh, within the Assemblies of God, and I you know went to VBS to the old buddy Barrel. Some of us who grew up Pentecostal will know that reference. Um, you know, did did Bible study all the time, but I had serious issues with things like how does how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible, right? And, and as I brought some of this up, what about cavemen? What about transitional fossils? You know, the stuff that I see on Nova all the time. You know, I'm out there. Uh, you know, we're watching TV with my grandfather, who's an atheist, and he's uh, you know, totally encaptured by all this stuff uh, and is convinced, well, evolution is true. Therefore, God does not exist. Now, let me say at the outset that I absolutely uh, reject the uh, Darwinian theory of evolution that is kind of put forth as far as common ancestry and uh, macroevolution. I just I don't find that convincing or compelling at all. And I think it would be some serious theological problems um, as far as um, as far as a few things. I think as far as the character of God, as far as inerrancy goes, I'm not sure how that would work with the Bible. But, but I say that all to say, again, I'm not, I'm not adopting theistic evolution, but what I'm saying is this. Um, if evolution was true, biological evolution was true, that would in no way somehow disprove the existence of God. That is such a far leap from from saying biological evolution is true to therefore God does not exist. It is absurd. It is ridiculous logic. Terrible logic. Because you first have to explain, well, how does the universe come into existence? Right now, without trying to get into a big debate about the age of the Earth, um, uh, most of your... uh, Secular science uh, astronomers are going to say the universe is 13.8 billion years old. You know, I'm a young Earth creationist, but when I talk with with atheists or non-believers, I have no problem giving that to them. Because right, you know, for the for this point, I'm not particularly worried about when did it start, but rather that it started, that it came into existence. So the fact that the uh, consensus among cosmologists are that the universe came into existence. 13.8 13.8 billion years ago, how does that happen? How do you get something from nothing? If the universe is not eternal, then it had to come from something. It had to be an external uh, cause outside of the universe because the universe didn't exist. Secondly, you have the fine-tuning argument. Uh, and that is such that the initial conditions of the universe had to be in such a way uh, that it was life-permitting. And uh, it's, that's a pretty deep argument. We're, we're going to actually do a whole show on the fine-tuning argument. But, you know, it, when you think about it, the sun is 93 million miles away. If it was any closer, we would burn. If it was any further, we'd freeze. If the moon, the moon causes a tide. If it was closer, uh, it would drown us twice a day. If it was further away, the water uh, would stagnate. We would die uh, force of gravity, electrons, uh, protons, neutrons. I think I think he rocks. A, he I know he's got a book called uh, Why the Universe Is the Way It Is, and he lists. I, I want to say like 160 or something to that effect 
of these anthropic constants. So uh, it was probably in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, um, there was a big debate at, I want to say, Willow Creek. Well, it was either Willow Creek or Saddleback. It was between uh, William Lane Craig and the biologist Frank Zindler. Now, this was the debate of, this, of, of the century. Right, this was, um, they had this idea that we're going to do this debate in the church. We're going to let the atheists get their best guy. The Christians are going to get their best defender of the faith. We're going to do this debate, and we're going to, we're going to put it out so a lot of countries can be watching it and, and viewing this thing, and we'll see what happens. And so they get uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, who most uh, people who are, familiar at all with uh, Christian apologetics and philosophy will immediately recognize Dr. Craig is one of the, the best defenders um, of the faith alive today, if not the best. And he went up against Frank Zimmer, who is a biologist and an atheist. Now, this debate is painful to see, uh, but I think it illustrates an important point. Frank Zimmer kept trying to push the point of biological evolution and he thought that if he could make Dr. Craig concede that biological evolution was true, that that would demonstrate, therefore, God does not exist, or at least make the probability of God's existence very low. But Dr. Craig, a brilliant philosopher, actually turned this around and said, listen, uh, based on the fine-tuning argument, even if life were to evolve on Earth, the conditions for the universe to allow life-permitting uh, um, atmosphere and, you know, just a few of the different constants would be such, so, so highly improbable that that stuff could just happen by, by chance uh, that that evolution itself would end up being an argument for the existence of God. So, again, folks, I don't believe that uh, macroevolution is true. I don't believe in common descent. I don't believe that. But what I'm saying is this idea that somehow if biological evolution was true, that that would disprove the existence of God is utterly foolish. It's utterly ridiculous. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. So I said to say, you know, I, I grew up in that kind of, uh, kind of a environment, and so that's how I was kind of taught to think. And so instead of engaging with some of the scientific apologetics, and so instead of engaging with the evolutionists, um, I grew up kind of being taught that, uh, you know, hey, that's uh, science, reason, logic. Um, there, that's tools of the enemy. You know, you, you educate yourself so much, you just educate yourself right out of the Christian faith. And that kind of a message, what that sends is this idea that Christianity can't, can't stand. Um, it, it can stand in the churches, and it can stand among ignorant people. But, uh, yeah, if, it ever, if, it, if you used to ever try to defend that thesis that Jesus rose from the dead or that God exists or that evolution was false or something like that, oh, yeah, you, you would just be laughed at. And, of course, that's, that's a, a big reason why so many uh, walk away from the faith. So let me keep reading this here uh, real quick. It says, why apologetics? I give three reasons. First, we're commanded by God to give a reason for the hope that is within us. 
That's First Peter 3.15. Not every Christian is called to go to seminary and dedicate their lives to defending the faith. However, all Christians need to know what they believe and why they believe it. Throughout church history, there have been many who have tried to infiltrate the church in order to lead others astray through false teachings. Paul addressed this in his admonition to the Ephesian elders. Acts uh, chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. End quote. In order to identify and discern a false view of God or corrupt gospel, we must first know what the correct teaching is. This comes through reading the Bible, prayer, and studying theology. As I see Sproul has said, everyone is a theologian on some level. The question is whether we will be good theologians or bad theologians. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved. A workman needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Learning apologetics for the Christian is a command. It's not an option. Being intellectually lazy is not an option, folks. Run into these apologists, so to speak, and I don't think they're apologists at all, who think they... uh, just quoting uh, a Bible verse is enough. And, uh, you know, we're, co- we're commanded to give a defense. Nothing wrong with quoting scripture, of course, but uh, we should also not be afraid to engage in some of the, the other issues and not be, not be intellectually lazy on some of these issues. Second, we're commanded to evangelize. We live in a culture that is increasingly skeptical. Forty years ago, there was a tremendous degree of respect for the Bible in this country. However, we now live in a culture where mocking the Bible is not only acceptable, but it is encouraged. The rise of scientism, the view that only that which can be proved scientifically is true, makes dialoguing about the existence of God and reliability of the Bible particularly challenging. When engaging in evangelism, Christians are challenged to give reasons why one should believe that God exists and that the Bible is an authoritative book. Up until the 1800s, Christians have been well-versed in philosophical and historical arguments, not only for the existence of God, but the resurrection of Christ and the authority of the Bible. However, today, many unbelievers and many Christians have never heard of the existence of God and reliability of the Bible defended with rational arguments. In our culture, it is impossible to do evangelism without engaging in apologetics. We all have different gifts and talents within the body of Christ, so everyone will not be experts, but we should strive to study up on some of the basic objections commonly given to help us uh, and to give us confidence as we share the gospel with others. So I'll post that on our uh, Facebook page uh, a little later on and uh, let people kind of look through that. Uh, But what I wanted to do is, um, let's see here. I wanted to give a kind of a quick little, kind of little audio clip here if I can find it, um, of what Ratio Christi is and uh, what we do with Ratio Christi, why we, why we think it's important 
to get on the campus and uh let's see it may not I may not have that um, but uh if we go if you go to uh, rationalchristie.org, you can find several websites or uh, several uh, colleges where you can also get involved with with Rational Christie. Maybe you're a college student and you're needing to uh you know want some answers to some of the objections that you're hearing in the classroom as far as the existence of God or the problem of evil or reliability of the Bible. Go to rationalchristie.org and you can see if your university or school has a chapter uh, on the college campus. And that will uh, definitely help to equip you and, uh, and help you to be able to kind of stand for, for your faith when you're being, uh, it's being challenged. So that being said, I'm going to go ahead and take a break real quick. When we come back, we will have our guest, uh, Robert Bowman, on, and we're going to be looking at Bart Ehrman's uh, new work and going to be looking at how to defend uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. So I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book on called uh, Conviction uh, Without Compromise. It has a chapter in each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrines? Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So you're going to call it a, a building if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundations aren't there? Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. All right, and we are back with uh, my guest, Rob Bowman. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Robin. Uh, we, the, we're going to be looking at the Dr. Bart Ehrman's new book, How Jesus Became God. 
But uh, Rob Bowman is Director of Research uh, with the Institute for Religious Research. Rob holds an MA in Biblical Studies from Fuller Theological Seminary, completed his doctoral studies at Westminster Theological Seminary, and is currently pursuing the completion of his doctoral dissertation at the South African Theological Seminary. Uh, For 10 years, he also taught graduate courses in apologetics at Luther Rice University and Biola, and is the author of many articles and uh, books pertaining to apologetics, religion, and biblical theology. And tonight we're going to be looking uh, at Dr. Bart Ehrman's new book, How Jesus Became God, uh, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. Rob, are you there? I sure am. Man, it's so great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's really, really been looking forward to to doing this show for a long time. Did I leave anything out there of the intro? I know you're you're married and kids, right? Yep. All right, well, uh, good. I appreciate the introduction. All right, all right. So maybe for those who are not real interested with, uh, not interested, but those who don't know much about you. Tell us a little bit about maybe how you you got into apologetics. Uh, well, basically the uh, the simple answer is I got into apologetics because I needed it for myself. I, I needed to know uh, why Christianity was true. I, I needed to know how to sort out uh, true from false claims regarding Christianity, regarding what the Bible teaches. Uh, I needed to understand uh, what the Bible uh, teaches about uh, Christ, uh, about God, um, and uh, compare that to what different religions were teaching uh, that claimed to speak for God. And so both in dealing with general or skeptical objections to Christianity and dealing with heretical misinterpretations of the Bible and Christianity, uh, I found myself with a lot of questions and a deep desire to get to the bottom of things and uh, not just accept uh, some other person or group's answers to the questions, but really wanted to to understand for myself and dig in uh, to those things. And so that's really how I got into uh, theology and biblical studies and apologetics is because I needed to understand those things for myself. And then, uh, you know, as I learned some things, uh, I found myself in a, in a position where I could share that with other people. And that's basically what I've been doing my entire adult life. Wow. And you, you've done a lot of, uh, I know you've done a lot of work with, uh, with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses as well, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, I've done a lot of research on both those groups. Uh, I've written four books on Jehovah's Witnesses and a book on Mormonism, uh, as well as recently, just uh, recently, completed my uh, doctoral dissertation on the Book of Mormon. Uh, and I've done a lot of other uh, writing on the on the on Mormonism as well. So I've done a lot of work on those two groups in particular. Yes. Wow, I know you're you're really known for for um, your your work on kind of a uh, defending the doctrine of the Trinity, and you responded to the Jehovah's Witness little pamphlet 
uh, Should You Believe the Trinity. You you turned that into a book, right? Uh, yes. Uh, one of my uh, first books was called Why You Should Believe in the Trinity, and it was an answer to Jehovah's Witnesses, and as you mentioned, a, a, a pamphlet or brochure that they had published and widely distributed uh, attacking the doctrine of the Trinity as apostate of the devil and so forth. Uh, and, and that was, a, a, again, how I got into that was I personally had questions about the Trinity and about the deity of Christ, and I needed to understand those things for myself. And uh, so as I spent a lot of time looking at those things uh, in order to understand them, uh, when these things came out, like that particular publication of the Jehovah's Witnesses, I was in a position where I had something I could share with other people because I'd worked through that issue for myself. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you, your your work has been such a blessing for the body of Christ, and I have, and I've really gained from it. And thank you. I was reading that you had uh, you had worked with Dr. Walter Martin for some time. Is, is that correct? Uh, that's right. Uh, that uh, almost sounds like ancient history now, but I was at the Christian <laughs> Research Institute in the uh, late 80s, and uh, so it, it's been quite a number of years now, but uh, yes, I was I was at CRI many years ago. And how awesome is that? Dr. Martin had a profound influence on me like I know he did many others, so that's, that's really right. neat. Well, I guess the, the we'll go ahead and, and jump into the topic of the show. Um, you had wrote a blog on, on parchment and pen uh, called How Jesus Became God or How God Became Jesus, a review of Bart Ehrman's new book and a concurrent uh, response. And I'll just kind of kind of turn it over to you and let you kind of lead the discussion as to how you wanted to 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 talk about that. Sure. Well, most people who are listening, I'm guessing, have heard of Bart Ehrman. Uh, Ehrman is a, a New Testament scholar who was, according to his testimony, a very conservative, uh, I think it would be fair to say fundamentalist uh, Christian uh, when he was younger, when he was a young person. Uh, but by the time he got out of school, uh, he had become an agnostic, apparently. He has written a number of books that have been uh, very well, well read, very, uh, very popular, including a book called Misquoting Jesus, which probably was the one that catapulted him to uh, national fame. Uh, and that book dealt with textual criticism of the New Testament and Ehrman's story that uh, realizing that there were discrepancies in the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament and that uh, they didn't all say the same thing and and uh, it wasn't always possible to be 100% sure which one was right, somehow led him to the conclusion that he could no longer trust the Bible as the Word of God. There's a number of jumps in reasoning there that people have been pointing out ever since he came out with this argument, but uh, it is true that there are uh, Christians who are surprised to learn that there is some question in some cases as to what a particular verse of the Bible uh, originally said, where we're not 100% sure what the exact Greek word was. Uh, it might make a slight difference in the way you read that particular verse. Uh, did, Jesus, uh, did Paul say, 
let us have peace with God, or we have peace with God in Romans 5.1. Well, uh, in this life, we may never know, because the manuscripts are pretty evenly divided, and it's not really possible to be dogmatically certain uh, as to which of those uh, wordings uh, are correct. Well, it comes down to a single letter in Greek uh, that uh, makes the difference between those two uh, translations. Uh, does that mean we can't trust the Bible? No. Does that make any significant difference in Paul's theology? No. Uh, but if you have a very inflexible understanding of, uh, of the inerrancy of Scripture or of uh, the, the kind of truth uh, that Scripture provides to the believer, and you are un, unsettled by the idea that you might not be able to answer a question like that with 100% certainty, and that could throw you for a loop, and it probably has thrown a number of people for a loop over the years. And Ehrman capitalizes that in his, on that in his books, uh, that kind of thing, where people make easy assumptions, uh, perhaps have a superficial understanding of how uh, the Bible works, and uh, by pointing out that there are problems with some traditional uh, assumptions, not with what the Bible says, but with traditional assumptions about what the Bible is saying, uh, then people get uh, confused. Uh, the the uh, recent book that we're talking about today uh, is really a kind of a culmination of Ehrman's scholarship over the uh, past 20 years, and it goes back to one of his earliest interests, which is uh, the uh, the Christology of the New Testament. One of his earliest books argued uh, that the early church in the uh, 3rd, 4th centuries in particular, uh, in some cases uh, favored certain wordings in the New Testament in order to uh, safeguard the, the uh, Orthodox Christology of the New Testament writers. And uh, that book was called The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. And it's a very, it, it gives the impression that uh, there was some kind of, if you're not reading carefully, that there was some secret conspiracy to suppress what the New Testament writers actually said and so forth. And even Ehrman isn't actually arguing that, but sometimes he makes it sound like it is. Uh, oh. Okay, so it sounds more interesting. <laughs> Uh, so he, he writes about Christology a lot, about what the New Testament says about Christ. And in his most recent book, he argues that the New Testament uh, presents kind of the end result of a process of uh, theological development among the early Christians uh, from the teaching of Jesus himself, in which Jesus didn't think of himself as, as in any sense divine, uh, to the teachings of uh, the Apostle John, or whoever wrote the, the Gospel of John, I don't think he would say it was the Apostle, but the, the writings of John uh, and other writings in the New Testament uh, that uh, present Jesus as having uh, been God incarnate. Uh, and he argues that there was a, a development there, an evolution, if you will, uh, from the original teaching of Jesus himself, and that's the point of his book, uh, how Jesus became God. God, uh, it, it, Jesus, in, in Ehrman's view, uh, is was not God, but certainly didn't think of himself as being God. But the church eventually came around to that idea 
uh, as they reflected on what Jesus meant to them, if we could put it that way. And then the, my, my, my article on uh, parchment and pen also reviewed a response to Ehrman's book that was published at the same time, in fact, published on the same day, called How God Became Jesus, a, a reference to the idea that, that Jesus is God incarnate. And that book is a collection of essays responding to various parts of Bart Ehrman's book. Wow. So they're coming out around the same time as is, uh, what well, I read, the, is that right? The publishing house uh, of uh, Harper One pub, that published Ehrman's book is owned by HarperCollins. HarperCollins also owns Zondervan, and Zondervan is an evangelical publishing house that published the How God Became Jesus book. So actually there was some cooperation between the two publishing houses uh, because they were both owned by the same corporate uh, entity, HarperCollins, and uh, they thought this will be a good way to, to, uh, to make some money is to have these books come out and you know, have the authors uh, you know, disagreeing with each other, but still, uh, you know, they'll each have their markets and so forth. So that was that was the reasoning. And so, yes, they, uh, the, uh, the 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 two books came out on the same day on purpose. It wasn't an accident. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you. A lot of people will just kind of dismiss those who don't know Dr. Ehrman. May just kind of dismiss him as a as a crank or something. But Dr. Ehrman's a, a serious scholar, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of the real oh, yes. deal, I guess, in academia. Uh, he's, he's a real scholar. He's uh, very uh, knowledgeable, very, uh, very sophisticated. Uh, he, he has, uh, you know, really unquestionable standing in the academic world as a, as a biblical scholar. Uh, just to give you an idea of that standing, uh, he was uh, the he he became the co-author of the last edition of Bruce Metzger's textbook on the text of the New Testament, which was uh, the standard uh, textbook on the subject of New Testament textual criticism for decades. Uh, toward the end of Metzger's life, uh, I, I guess with his agreement, uh, obviously, uh, before he passed away, uh, that book was revised with Ehrman as the co-author. And Ehrman uh, made significant changes to the book that reflected his you know, I- information and his, uh, his way of looking at things, but it's, it's pretty straightforward standard stuff uh very Ehrman's opinions on the significance of things in the new testament are very often way off the beam from my point of view but his his factual analysis of the uh of the text of the history etc uh, a lot of that is is right in fact, one of the things that I point out in my review is that Bart Ehrman makes a number of points in this book, uh, How Jesus Became God, that I think we evangelical Christians uh, should be very happy that he made. Uh, he made a number of very good points. Uh, and there are a lot of people out there that we could kind of uh, dismiss as the crazies who say things that are just off the wall and 
obviously, you know, just not right. even factually legitimate or plausible. And, right. You know, mm-hmm. nonsense like Jesus never even existed, and uh, <laughs> nobody thought Jesus yeah. was divine until Constantine rammed that idea down people's throats in the fourth century, and, and this kind of stuff. That's all a bunch of hooey, and to his credit, Bart Ehrman doesn't say things like that. He actually contradicts those ideas. So, in fact, earlier, before this book came out, he had a book come out a, a couple years ago or so uh, on the existence of Jesus as an historical person. The whole book was a refutation of the Jesus mythers. Wow. Uh, I, I, yeah, and, and so it makes some good, oh, go ahead, makes huh? some good contributions to scholarship. Yeah, I was going to say, they recently did a atheist, uh, like a big conference down where I'm at. And uh, one of the, like, the, the keynote speakers was Richard Carrier. And uh, it was so funny during that talk to listen to Carrier uh, just attacking Bart Ehrman, both personally and, uh, and his scholarship. And I, a lot of the people in the crowd didn't really know how to take it because they just knew Bart Ehrman was atheist or agnostic. And so they thought he was on their side. And so to hear uh, Richard Carrier, you know, going into this blistering attack uh, right. on this person and on a scholarship kind of amazed them. Well, see, Carrier is not a credentialed, uh, you know, member of the uh, 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 biblical studies academia establishment. He, he, he has some education, and he, ha- he has some knowledge. He's not a dummy, uh, but he right. doesn't have kind of uh, academic standing. And his opinions on these matters are extreme by any legitimate standard, whereas Ehrman, uh, when we disagree with him, we probably should acknowledge that most of the time what he says is in the mainstream of uh, biblical scholarship uh, today, uh, certainly outside of evangelicalism. But much of what he says, uh, we we agree with. I mean, Ehrman in his book, uh, if I could just tick off a few examples really quickly, he mentions, he yeah. argues that Jesus was a real person. He was a Galilean Jew who preached the kingdom of God. Uh, Ehrman, unlike many uh, of the, uh, the, we called uh, the, uh, the crazies, <laughs> Uh, Ehrman uh, argues that if you want to know anything about the historical Jesus, the four Gospels in the New Testament, particularly the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are your only real good source of information. You're not going to get much out of the Gnostic Gospels or other apocryphal writings. They, d- they tell us a lot about what the early church, or some people in the early church thought. They don't tell us much of anything about Jesus and about who Jesus really was. And that's fascinating wow. to see him in that position. Uh, Ehrman argues that Jesus thought he was the Messiah, or that he would at least become the Messiah. Uh, Ehrman argues that Jesus was crucified at the order of Pontius Pilate and actually died on the cross. Well, a, a lot of ideas go right out the window right there. You know, people trying to explain away the resurrection by saying Jesus swooned or uh, somebody else got crucified in this place, like Judas Iscariot, which that's that's the traditional Muslim explanation, uh, by the way. And Ehrman rejects that. Uh, and Ehrman 
agrees that at least some of Jesus' original disciples sincerely believed that they saw Jesus alive from the dead after his death. Uh, wow. Now, that's an awful lot of uh, 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 concessions, if you will, from somebody mm-hmm. who is a who does not believe in Jesus as the divine Son of God. Now he, uh, you know, there's some things to disagree with uh, that are very important. But I just want to establish that the there is a foundation of of responsible scholarship and fact in what Ehrman says that that actually makes it more credible than if he was saying these loony things that that some of the fringe. Uh, pseudo scholars put out about Jesus. Yeah, you know, you know the uh, Dr. Mike Lacona and uh, Dr. Ehrman had a debate at uh, my seminary actually that I go to Southern Evangelical, and uh, I mean Dr. Lacona did a great job as he always does uh, in these debates. But what was really telling was it's like you say it seems as though the facts uh, they agreed upon the facts. The difference was kind of the philosophical presuppositions going into it as to where uh, Dr. Ehrman just seemed to just reject miracles kind of from the from the outgo, and therefore the resurrection couldn't be a possible explanation. Right. Well, to be precise, Ehrman uh, argues that we don't know if miracles are true or not, but historians cannot affirm that miracles right. took place because they fall outside the purview of historical uh, research or investigation. Now, Ehrman says that, and he's very careful most of the time uh, to say, look, I'm not denying that Jesus was God. I'm not denying that he rose from the dead. I'm saying that historians can't show that those things are true and that historians can raise some, some questions about how these beliefs came about. Uh, but when you really pay very, very close attention, you can catch him, as, as it were, making statements that really do assume that miracles aren't true or that, you know, God wouldn't, you know, can't become a man and things like that. There, there are places where that, that shows, where his epistemological right. assumptions kind of peek through. Uh, but he he usually tries to couch these things so that, uh, he isn't coming across simply rejecting or denying that, that Christianity is true. He personally admits he's not a Christian, that he's an agnostic, but he's saying, look, uh, as an historian, you know, there are limits to what I can, what I can uh, affirm or what I can uh, even talk about. Um, so his, at least one of his debates with Lacona was not about whether Jesus rose from the dead, but whether historians can say anything about whether Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, I do think that in this most recent book, How Jesus Became God, that if you're you're paying close attention, in the end he ends up saying, no, Jesus did not rise from the dead. Uh, He has an historical explanation that really precludes that, uh, that belief. Now, it doesn't preclude a person believing that Jesus is alive in some spiritual sense. But I, I think Ehrman's position does preclude his explanation of what happened is, in, is not compatible with the belief that Jesus rose physically, bodily from the grave and appeared in that body 
uh, to his disciples. Uh, what he really is arguing for is that there was some kind of a religious uh, experience on the part of Jesus' disciples that they thought were uh, experiences of encountering the risen Jesus in some sense. They interpreted those uh, pretty quickly as bodily resurrections, but uh, that isn't what really happened, according to Ehrman. Right. On the on your on your um, the blog there that you did, you kind of got an overview of the books and kind of go over some of the points. Did you want to, want to look at a couple of those points, maybe? And yeah, sure. So people kind of have an idea of what the what the book is saying. Yeah, absolutely. Well. I, uh, the subtitle, we, if we unpack the subtitle of the book, I think we'll help people get a handle on what this book is about. Uh, the subtitle is The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. And the key term there is exaltation. Uh, Ehrman's view is that Jesus, uh, as we said already, died uh, on the cross at, at the order of Pontius Pilate and that uh, his disciples, his original, some of his original disciples, believed that they had uh, seen Jesus in some way after his death, and they interpreted what they saw in terms that they could understand as a resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they inferred from this they, they concluded from this that Jesus had been exalted by God uh, to a, a kind of a, a heavenly throne, uh, you know, next, next to God at his right hand. You know, this is biblical language that's being reinterpreted now. But that they thought that uh, Jesus had been exalted by God uh, as a man who had sort of uh, been uh, taken up into heaven and uh, given honors uh, by God and made into a kind of semi-divine figure uh, as a result of his uh, death and and whatever happened after that. So the original belief of these very first disciples was that Jesus was a man who had been exalted by God after his death. However, very quickly, uh, according to Ehrman, this belief morphed into the idea that Jesus was a divine figure who existed before his human life. Now, I hope people are understanding the difference between these two claims. The, the first claim is Jesus was a, just a man who then was exalted after his death, who was given a very high position, extremely high position, but just a man who had been uh, exalted to that very, very, very high position. The second belief was that Jesus was some kind of divine figure, and we need to word it that way, not that he was God, but that he was some kind of a divine figure who existed before his human life, came to the earth as a man, and then returned to heaven as a divine figure again. Um, and that 
that uh, belief, according to Ehrman, was a, a, a second stage in the development of Christianity, the first stage being the exaltation of a man, the second stage being Jesus is this divine figure. Now, when you press the details of that by a divine figure, Ehrman means something like an angel. Jesus was like an angelic being who becomes a man and goes back to heaven as, a, as an exalted uh, angelic being. Uh, and it, it, to, in effect, uh, Paul is, is interpreted here as teaching something similar to the view of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Ah, okay. Uh, and then, <laughs> so, so uh, then later on, it, John, uh, in his writings, teaches that uh, Jesus uh, was someone who existed before creation, who was God, equal to God, and yet distinct from God the Father. And so essentially, John, though he wasn't an overtly or explicitly Trinitarian thinker, explained the person of Jesus in a way that certainly led to the doctrine of the Trinity. So according to Ehrman, the earliest Christology was Unitarian. Jesus was a man who was exalted up into heaven. The second stage was more like an Arian Christology, like the Jehovah's Witnesses hold today. Jesus was an angel who, was, uh, who became a man, uh, died, and was returned to heaven as an exalted angelic being. And the third stage was something close to the Orthodox Christology of Jesus was God distinguished from the, from the Father who came to the earth and then returned as, as God um, to the right hand of the Father. So he sees different Christologies in different parts of the New Testament. So if you're a Unitarian, you're really with him on what the earliest Christians thought, but you can't agree with him about what Paul and John taught. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you like what he said about Paul, but you don't like what he said about the rest of it, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, of course... Ehrman uh, doesn't have a problem believing that there are disparate or incompatible Christologies in the New Testament because he doesn't believe the New Testament is the Word of God. He doesn't believe it's inspired. There's no reason why it needs to be consistent. Um, there, there are inconsistencies, according to him, because these are just p- different people uh, in the in the in the in the uh, passage of time coming up with their own explanations of these things, and they don't agree with each other. Uh, a Christian who takes the New Testament as the Word of God is going to say, well, now, that's not going to work. We're, we could be Unitarians, or we could be Arians, or we could be Trinitarians, but we can't accept the idea that all three of these doctrines are taught in the New Testament. We're going to have to figure out how they fit together. Uh, but, uh, of course, Ehrman isn't coming at it from that point of view. Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. As Christians, believing that... Uh... God, the Holy Spirit, is the author, and thus is not going to believe in contradictory things. But it's like you say, if he doesn't come at it from that view, then it's just a hodgepodge of different beliefs, I guess, right? Well, that's right. And and Ehrman thinks that he can explain why that's the case. That's really the point of this book, How Jesus Became God, that the reason why there are, in his point of view, these different ideas about Jesus in the New Testament is that there was a development. But what's fascinating about this is the development takes place with extreme rapidity, with extreme quickness. 
I mean, less than 20 years uh, after Jesus died, uh, Ehrman agrees that at least some Christians believe that Jesus was a divine figure who existed before his human life. Uh, you know, the, the common uh, idea of the, 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 the fringe scholarship of many people uh, and so, in a sense, you say, "Well, that's not fringe if it's held by many people." But it's not—it's not conventional uh, wisdom in biblical scholarship. But there is this very popular idea that the earliest Christians were just followers of Jesus, trying to live by the Sermon on the Mount, trying to love love their neighbor, and so forth. And they just thought Jesus was a great teacher. And then Paul came along, and he changed Christianity from a religion taught by Jesus to religion about Jesus as a divine figure, uh, that Paul changed Christianity from a moral code to a, a Hellenized savior cult, is the way it's sometimes explained. Well, Ehrman uh, rejects that model. Uh, Paul didn't make Christianity about Jesus. It was always about Jesus. The earliest Christians, the earliest followers of Jesus after his death, Uh, hey, hey, Rob, are you there? Okay, Rob dropped off there. We we lost him, but uh, yes, fascinating, fascinating discussion, and I'm sure he'll he'll get back with us here shortly. But as you see, kind of the importance to to be able to counter some of this stuff that is put out there in in scholarship, so we're able to. Uh, to answer some of the latest objections that are that are coming, as you see, some of these things uh, are pretty pretty thought out. So, with that being said, as we get Rob Bowman back on the show, we're going to go ahead and go to a commercial break. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One Minute Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Frank, is truth true for you, but not for me? I always hear that, and I usually say. Is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you and not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. <laughs> I know that can give you intellectual constipation, yeah, yeah, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's actually, there's an easier way of illustrating this. True for you, but not for me. Say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Go to your bank teller one day and say, look, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks <laughs> your account and says, I'm sorry, sir, you only have $47.16 in your account. That's easy to get the money. Bobby, you simply say, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. Are you going to get the money? <laughs> no, you're not. If it's true, there's only $47.16 in your account. That's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. And by the way, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. If he really did, that's true for all people at all times and all places. If he really did. Of course, it's not true if he didn't rise from the dead. And I think the evidence is quite strong that he did. So saying it's true for you but not for me may sound good. It's the mantra of our culture. But it's self-defeating. It's logically self-defeating. And it just doesn't work. Sounds like you're trying to say that truth corresponds to reality. I am. I'm actually (laughs) trying to say that. have uh, Rob Bowman back on the line with us there. Lost the connection briefly, and we are uh, discussing Bart Ehrman's uh, latest work. So 
Rob, you there? I am. All right. So one of the things I was going to ask you about this, um, uh, again, we're, and I'll, I'll post this later on, the, on our Facebook page, uh, you, the blog that you've uh, written about this on parchment and pen. Uh, point two, it says, after Jesus was crucified in the year 30, his corpse was left on the cross for an unknown period of time and was not was probably not given a decent burial. Um, so does Ehrman not agree then that his that Jesus was uh, was buried? Uh, at least not in a tomb. Uh, and okay. this is a, this is a, a very crucial point, and I think it is a significant weak point in Ehrman's uh, account. But he was sort of I think he was sort of forced into it because uh, uh, until he came out with this book, Ehrman had taken the position that Jesus probably was buried uh, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb or something like that. And But he decided uh, evidently that uh, the resurrection was just uh, too hard to get around if that uh, fact was allowed to go unchallenged. So in in his new book, How Jesus Became God, Ehrman takes the position uh, that Jesus' body was not given a decent burial, certainly not in, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and uh, that the appearances of Jesus to some of his disciples uh, took place uh, quite a bit later, a week or more later, and not anywhere near the tomb, uh, in fact, in Galilee. Uh, and you see by, by, first of all, questioning the burial in the tomb, secondly, driving a wedge geographically and chronologically uh, of making a large gap between, uh, somewhat large anyway, between the death of Jesus and the uh, reported appearances, it calls into question the veridicality or the truthfulness, uh, the, the reality of those reports. He's not saying that those people didn't have those experiences, but he's going to set up the set up this, the storyline so that it becomes plausible then to argue that they were having some kind of uh, hallucination or religious experience that wasn't uh, true to the physical world. It was just their own, like like uh, somebody seeing their uh, de- recently departed grandmother uh, after after the lady had been buried, uh, seeing that person in their bedroom or something and, and saying, you know, Grandma came and talked to me. It, it's kind of like that. And so that's, that's where he's going with that. And so he's not denying that the people had sincere ex- experiences, uh, but he's denying that Jesus actually uh, rose from the dead. And he's, uh, to make that work, he's denying that Jesus was, was buried. He... He's now taking basically the same view that John Dominic Crossan notoriously had taken, uh, that Jesus' body uh, was lost, uh, that it, uh, there was no way to keep track of wh- what happened to it. Crossan's view was the body was probably eaten by dogs. Uh, Ehrman doesn't necessarily <clears throat> uh, endorse that particular part of the argument, although you know, that would be consistent with his view. But his point is is that the the body was not in a well-marked location where there would be no question that something had happened if if the tomb was empty, you know, that kind of thing. No, there's no tomb uh, involved here. 
and so he he gets rid of that uh, by saying that you know there's there's no he he thinks there's there are reasons to question uh, the the tomb uh, narrative in the Gospels. All right, uh, the number to call in, folks, if you have a question for uh, for Rob is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven sure uh rob would love to uh to hear from anybody out there that may have some some questions um let's see here you you have a section where you're kind of looking at some of the um more of the the weaker points you you see in his uh right. his arguments want to go through through some of them uh sure or wherever you want to go and you 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 kind well, of lead it i'll let you i think i think decide. people would help people to look at the foundational premise of the whole book, okay. which he lays out in a lot of detail toward the beginning, which is this idea that in the ancient world, uh, the divine was a much more nebulous, fluid concept than it is in traditional Christian thinking, and that, uh, therefore, people could view Jesus as divine in various senses and and not mean that he was you know the creator of the universe come in the flesh and so what he does is he he goes through and he talks about various greco-roman notions of the divine uh and he shows that generally he's correct about this that uh, ancient uh greeks and romans thought of divine beings as anthropomorphic uh, beings who uh, could easily be mistaken for gods or be mistaken for people because they're sort of in between. And so he talks, for example, about the story uh, that was a popular story, a uh, well-known story in Phrygia uh, of uh, Jupiter and Mercury, uh, or uh, the Greek uh, names are Zeus and Hermes, visiting Phrygia and... Uh, that story makes its way into the book of Acts because when Barnabas and Paul went to Phrygia to preach the gospel, Luke tells us in Acts 14 that Barnabas and Paul were mistaken for Zeus and Hermes. Well, why were they mistaken for Zeus and Hermes? Because uh, they, they, uh, the Phrygians had this popular legend about being visited by Zeus and Hermes, here come Barnabas and Paul, probably uh, performing some miracles in the name of Christ, uh, looking very much, you know, by what they were doing as as uh, divine in the the pagan uh, Phrygian point of view. Well, what right. Roman doesn't uh, really deal with, address directly, is the way Paul responds to the Phrygians. In Acts 14, uh, Acts 14, 15 to 17, Paul launches into an explanation uh, for the Phrygians that they are mere men who represent the one God who made everything and who rules over all nature. So Paul, in that response in Acts 14, makes it clear that he, along with the other Christians, held to a very strong, staunch monotheism in which there was a very clear demarcation between the divine and the human. 
And you couldn't, in that context, believe that a man uh, could be a kind of semi-divine being. Because in, in Paul's view, God is God, men are men, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, Ehrman wants to make out that uh, uh, people in the New Testament culture were very comfortable with the idea of uh, a man who was a man in one sense and divine in another sense, and and uh, it wouldn't have to be particularly well-defined or, or, or very specific. And... Uh, but their views could, and, and they could morph. Their ideas could change over year, over the years. And this is how the idea that Jesus was God came about. Well, uh, again, the uh, traditional conservative um, uh, Judaic view of God and, and creation was incompatible with that. And uh, Paul and his associates clearly drew a very strong, bright line between the creator and the creation, and they made it clear that Jesus Christ was on the creator side of that line. Right. And had graciously, humbly crossed over that line in order to become a man and atone for our sins. And that's what Paul is teaching in Philippians 2. I don't think that uh, Ehrman successfully gets around the implications of that in Philippians 2, uh, although he admits that Paul, that Paul thought Jesus was a pre-existent being, uh, but he wants to make out that uh, Paul thought Jesus was an angel. That's just not going to fly uh, in Paul's cultural, theological point of view. Uh, angels are not divine beings, uh, and Jesus is far more than an angel. He is the divine Son of God, coordinated in Galatians 4 with the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sent after Jesus had come and gone back to heaven. Then God sent the Holy Spirit, who's also a divine person, and clearly not an angel. <laughs> uh, and so that's, that, is the, the, that is where I think Ehrman goes wrong, is that he, he muddies the waters with regards to what the early Christians thought about the divine by mixing that in with what the general pagan culture thought about the divine. Yeah, you said that's that's kind of the Achilles heel, right? Of his. Oh, yeah, uh, I think so. I think this is the this is the serious problem is that there's a kind of a presupposition here, uh, a, a kind of uh, a, 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 of an explanation uh, that doesn't fit. Uh, any of the known facts. Uh, I, I point out in my review that Ehrman uh, finds three models of the divine uh, human, the, the, the man that's also a divine being in some con sense, in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, number one, gods who temporarily became human. Well, that's not what any of the early Christians thought. They didn't think that God tempor that any god temporarily became a man Jesus, uh, so that doesn't fit. Uh, set number two, uh, divine beings born of a god and a mortal. In other words, you've got, you've got uh, Zeus and a girl, and, and Zeus gets the girl pregnant uh, through the usual means. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, so the, the, uh, the offspring of the god and the mortal is a semi-divine being like Hercules, right? 
and then the third uh, model is a human who becomes divine. And Jesus doesn't fit any of those. Um, and I have a quote here from Ehrman's book on page 18 where he says, quote, I don't know of any other cases in ancient Greek or Roman thought of this kind of God-man where an already existing divine being is said to be born of a mortal woman, end quote. Uh, wow. that, that is a, an astonishing admission because it really, uh, what he's really having to admit is that the Christian view of Jesus is, is not in continuity with what people in the ancient world thought about the gods. Uh, this is a totally new belief, right? And yeah, I don't think his ex, I don't think he is able to overcome that problem. He wants to have the Christian view of Jesus be a natural development within the religious cultural milieu of of Jews and and Greeks and Romans in the first century, uh, and it just it's sort of a natural development, and it doesn't work. Wow. Second, well, let's look at the second point here. He got on his uh, some of his weaknesses. Yeah, this this one's really a fascinating one. I, I think many people may have a little bit of trouble connecting to this. Uh, it, it doesn't have a lot of emotional punch, but it uh, I, I think it's a very significant weakness because Bart Ehrman takes the view that Jesus thought that he was going to be the Messiah, but not the Son of Man. Now you say, well, what, what difference does that make? Well, the Son of Man is this figure who uh, is, a, in, in ancient Jewish thought, seems to be more than a man, and he is going to be this person who is going to exercise uh, judgment over all the whole world at the end of history, and there's all kinds of things that are said about the Son of Man like that. And, and Ehrman uh, takes the position that Jesus didn't think of himself as someone who would become the Son of Man, but only the Jewish uh, Davidic Messiah, you know, the, the, uh, the Son of David who would rule on an earthly throne in Jerusalem. Right. Uh, the problem is that uh, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, in the Gospels many times, uh, very explicitly, and when he doesn't, you know, doesn't say, I am the Son of Man, you know, in the context it's clear that he's claiming to be that Son of Man, and Ehrman mm -hmm. has, has to draw a, a kind of a, a line between the Messiah and the Son of Man in order to have Jesus think of himself as simply... Uh, an earthly figure, a man who is going to get kind of a reward at the end of history. No, Jesus thought of himself as a unique figure who was more than just a man, who was more than just a descendant of David. And one of the reasons why this doesn't work is because what Jesus and the New Testament writers said about the Messiah was pretty much the same things they said about the Son of Man, that this is a figure that would receive an eternal kingdom at the end of history, uh, that he would exercise some kind of authority and judgment over the rest of the world, etc., etc. 
So why why make that distinction? Well, I think Ehrman makes it because he's trying to trying to set up a simple uh, storyline of how beliefs in Jesus kind of snowballed from one little belief, you know, rather modest claim to bigger beliefs as you go along. I, I don't think it works. Well, you say uh, in the article that he gets that uh, this this view mainly because Jesus is referring to himself kind of in the third person as the son of man. That's kind of the basis of it. Yeah. So Jesus asks uh, somebody, who do you think the son of man is? And okay. instead of saying, you know, I am the son of man or uh, something like that, uh, Jesus will make a statement about, uh, you know, uh, at the end of history, the son of man will come and he will, he will do this and that. And so he refers to the Son of Man in that way, in a kind of third-person way. Right. And uh, the, Ehrman isn't original with this. He, he looks at that and says, well, uh, why is he referring to the Son of Man in the third person if he is the Son of Man? Uh, but, you know, Jesus in the Gospels talks that way uh, quite often. Uh, he asks people, who is the Son of David? Who is... Who, who's, who is the Messiah? Whose son is he? You know, well, is he not right. referring to himself? And, you know, Ehrman agrees that Jesus thought of himself as in line to become the Messiah. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's uh, not taking sufficiently seriously a, uh, a fact about the usage of the term that uh, is very distinctive, and that is that Jesus is almost the only person in the New Testament who ever uses the term. Uh, right. And when when you go to uh, Paul or John or whoever, Luke, when they're talking about Jesus, they almost never refer to him as the Son of Man. In fact, uh, for all practical purposes, they don't. Uh, somebody will have a vision and they'll say, I see the Son of Man. You know, but they... Uh, Paul never says, uh, I'm writing to you on behalf of Jesus, the Son of Man. They, they just don't talk that way. But in the Gospels, right. Jesus refers to the Son of Man constantly, and in many places, it's simply unavoidable that he is referring to himself, even though he uses the term in that third-person way. Uh, over and over and over again, uh, he'll say, uh, something about, you know, the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Well, is he referring to some future person? No, he's referring to himself. <laughs> you know, uh, right. so that, that's the kind yeah. of thing we're talking about here. There's just a lot of places where it's clear. It's clear yeah. in the immediate context that at least the gospel writer, if you want to be persnickety here, the gospel writer is presenting Jesus as referring to himself as the Son of Man. Now, if that yeah, was that's... an early church belief, that was imposed on Jesus after his death and not something Jesus held. Why don't the New Testament writers talk about Jesus as the Son of Man elsewhere? No, it's only when they're quoting Jesus himself, talking, that Jesus that, that we see that, that title being used. Uh, again, with two or three passages that are referring to people having a, a vision, like John in Revelation 1 or Stephen in Acts 7. So it, it seems pretty clear that the t origin of the title in Christianity comes from Jesus himself, and that Jesus used the title in reference to himself. 
Well, who is the Son of Man? Who, the Son of Man is this figure in Daniel 7 who is a, 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 looks like a, a divine figure. Uh, he comes before the Ancient of Days. He receives an eternal kingdom on behalf of the saints, uh, that he rules forever and ever, and all the nations come to serve him. Uh, you know, he's, he's this the fancy theological term there. He is this eschatological figure, this figure at the end of the age, who receives universal authority and power and, 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 and worship. He receives worship, according to Daniel 7. So right. uh, Jesus thought of himself as that person, and that is, I think, a very serious weakness with Ehrman's position. Yeah, that's damn. That is, that is really good. That's a that's a that's a really good point. I like that number two a lot. How about number three? Um, what's, what's I, I what actually the, like the third this third point because uh, it goes right to the it kind of cuts right to the chase, as it were. Um, what is Ehrman's point? Ehrman's point is Jesus was a guy who thought of himself as a teacher and future ruler. And that's it. He didn't think of himself as divine or as becoming divine. That's, his main, that's really Ehrman's main point. Jesus did not think of himself as divine. He didn't even think he would become divine. But within weeks of Jesus' death, according to Bart Ehrman, his original followers were sincerely proclaiming that Jesus was a divine figure, ruling over all creation at the right hand of God in heaven. Now, these these are people who love Jesus. They talk about mm. it's all about Jesus. They are fault. They claim that they're followers of Jesus. They want to preserve everything that Jesus taught. They want to talk about all the great things that Jesus did. Uh, so they have some kind of loyalty to Jesus, right? And Urban thinks that they're sincere. Well, why would they have forgotten? so quickly after Jesus died that Jesus didn't think of himself that way. Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, it'd be like uh, uh, after 50 years, of course, Jesus didn't teach for that long, but after 50 years or whatever, Billy Graham going around the world preaching the gospel and Jesus is the son of God and I'm just his humble servant and messenger, you know, as soon as, you know, three weeks after Billy Graham dies, uh, you know, the Billy Graham Association comes out with a statement, Billy Graham is God, you know. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> you know, Billy Graham is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's divine. Well, what? what? Did Billy Graham think that was going to happen? No. <laughs> uh, so you can imagine, it, it's, there's an there's a, a amazing disconnect between what Ehrman thinks Jesus thought of himself and what he says the earliest disciples of Jesus thought about Jesus almost immediately after he had died. Now, why would, and they, what made them come to this conclusion was that they had visionary experiences in which they thought they saw Jesus alive after, the, after his death. Well, if uh -huh. you see somebody alive after he's died, and this is somebody that insisted that he was just a man like you, but that God was going to give him, you know, some authority as a king or something. Uh, and you thought of him as a great teacher and future uh, a Davidic king. 
and you saw him or thought you saw him in a vision after he had died, you would conclude, hey, see, he is going to become that king. God's going to raise him from the dead at some point, and he's going to be that king, and everyone's going to, you know, uh, respect him. You wouldn't think, oh, he must be a divine figure. He must be, you know... <laughs> Uh, he, he, must, he, must, he must be seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why would you come up with that if you were trying to honor somebody who had clearly taught that that wasn't the case, that he was just a man? So I think this is probably one of the most severe problems for Ehrman's view, and it's right at the heart of it. If Jesus did think that he was divine or would become divine, it doesn't make any sense that his disciples who spent all that time walking around Galilee and Judea with him for three years, uh, would come up with that idea almost immediately after he died. So does he take then that like the visions that they saw uh, as like grief hallucinations or something, or 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 what does he? How does he deal with that? I know. Remember Dr. Habermas and, and Dr. Flu did their debate on on the Anchorberg show, and I remember Flu kind of saying that and. Is that, is that what Ehrman's saying as far as the visions? How does he explain that? Uh, hallucination would probably be an accurate term. Uh, what he argues is that uh, these experiences of the disciples are akin to uh, the visions that people have of departed loved ones, uh, departed revered figures uh, of uh, where they think they see that person in a, in a visionary experience after his death or her death. And uh, so he, he, he tries to, and he, again, he's not the only one that's tried to argue this case, that, that the disciples had experiences like uh, the experiences that many people throughout history, including up to today, have reported of thinking that they saw a loved one uh, after after that person had died and you know we usually think of that as that person's spirit appeared to you know the loved one and said you know I'm I'm okay I'm I'm my my suffering is over and I'm I'm at peace and I'm comfortable and I'm fine and wait till you get here it's wonderful and I'm looking forward to you joining me and you know that kind of thing and so uh, Ehrman is arguing that that's that's what happened. The disciples had these experiences that they thought, you know, were were appearances of Jesus. I, as a skeptic or agnostic, I would uh, I would take it that Ehrman doesn't think that really happened. That Jesus really appeared to the disciples, but the, some of them had these right. experiences. By the way, he tries to limit the number of people that had these experiences to about three. I mean, he can't prove okay. that it was only three, but he tries to limit it to a very small number of, of individuals. And yeah. by limiting it to that very small number, uh, he thinks he can, uh, uh, you know, uh, give kind of a naturalistic account. Because obviously if, if hundreds of people had this experience, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen six, 6, uh, yeah. you can forget about it, you know. <laughs> uh, or yep. if... Um, uh, if even late leaving out the 500, if all 11 of the surviving apostles uh, were together at one time and, and had this experience, that would that would be harder to explain away. So he limits it to a very small number of about three people, 
and says that it happened a week or maybe even longer than that after Jesus had died, and it happened in Galilee somewhere uh, and not in Jerusalem, you know, uh, a few minutes' walk from the tomb. So, uh, you know, there's no, in Ehrman's view, there's no uh, historicity to the gospel accounts of the apostles after seeing Jesus or after hearing the women say that they saw Jesus or saw angels who told them about the empty tomb. There's no historicity to the gospel accounts of the men going to the tomb to check it out for themselves. No, they couldn't do that. They were in Galilee, uh, and it wasn't that kind of experience, according to Ehrman. Okay, yeah, that's what I was wondering about, because I know at one time you had like 500 people that uh, they saw him, so I guess the the thing for him to do would be, like you say, try and get that down to... Just a just a few people, so <laughs> follow uh, the manager number. number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the fourth point, I know we kind of touched on a little bit. Did you want to add anything to that, or did you just want to move on to number five? Or uh, well, uh, I, I think we probably covered the fourth point enough. And for people who are wondering, you know, maybe not keeping track of the numbers here, which would be fine. Uh, the, the idea that these were you know, uh, bereavement visions is the term that Ehrman uses, uh, visions of people that, uh, loved ones who've recently passed away and people see them uh, in some kind of visionary experience. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, you kind of cut out Okay, there was a noise and maybe I got disconnected again. Uh, You know, Ehrman's point is that these uh, these are questionable uh, experiences. There's no reason to think Jesus really appeared to the disciples, but they may have, they may have thought that he did. But he has to take. He, what he tries to do is he's trying to to provide a historical, naturalistic way around the resurrection. Jesus wasn't buried in a tomb. Uh, the appearances were like bereavement visions. Uh, you. You know, you don't have to accuse anybody of being a, a big liar and m- making up the story of Jesus rising from the dead. You can offer a naturalistic explanation. They sincerely thought it happened. This is how they came up with it, uh, but it, it, it didn't actually happen that way. So that's wh- that's where he's going with it. The the real the the, the weak link there is his tr- attempt to argue that Jesus wasn't buried in a tomb. And if I could mention. The other book published by Zondervan, How God Became Jesus, in that book, uh, Craig Evans' chapter on the burial of Jesus in the tomb is, I think, the standout chapter in the book. Uh, If people only read that one chapter, it would be worth the price of the book because he does a masterful job of laying out the evidence for the historicity of Jesus' burial in the tomb. Uh, and, and answers all of Ehrman's uh, arguments against it, I think, pretty well, uh, very well, in fact, and uh, just makes, makes a very good case from uh, ancient sources that tell us what, what typically went on in burials and, and addresses the, the argument that Jesus wouldn't have been given a decent burial because he was uh, crucified by... The, he was crucified by the Romans, and so they wouldn't have allowed him to be buried in a tomb. He, he answers all of that and, and does a very good job. So if people are confused on this point, uh, 
Craig Evans' chapter in How God Became Jesus, I highly recommend that. Who are a few of the other contributors to that book? Well, Michael Bird, uh, who's an up-and-coming uh, New Testament scholar. Uh, Simon Gaither Cole, who has written extensively already on New Testament Christology, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels. And so he comes at this from the standpoint of somebody who has specifically researched the view of Christ that you find in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, and, and there are some others as well uh, uh, who have contributed to it. But uh, uh, as far as dealing with the New Testament evidence, um, those are among the main scholars. And then Chris Tilling uh, did two chapters on, on Paul, and, uh, or related specifically, uh, especially to Paul. And so uh, these are... Uh, these are all good scholars. They, they all have a lot of good things to contribute. Uh, I do think, uh, again, I would just, without you know, uh, denigrating the others, just say that Craig Evans' chapter is the home run uh, that really wow. knocks it out of the park. That's great. I'll definitely have to check that book out. And, and uh, people listening, I'm sure they can probably get it at Amazon or Oh, yeah, something. yeah. Uh, both books are easily found uh, through the usual means, uh, definitely. And it may uh, even be good well, to get both books just to kind of do a comparison. Would, would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, uh, nobody needs to take my word for anything. You can read both books, and, and uh, I would uh, encourage people to read my review at Parchment and Pen uh, because uh, I think there are some, again, I think Erwin makes some good points uh, that, that should be uh, – uh, sort of celebrated. Look, we've got a skeptic and agnostic who agrees with this, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who agrees that, that Paul called Jesus God in Romans 9 5, for example. That's astonishing. Um, but then I, I also think that there are some things I would like to have seen done a little bit better in the Zondervan book, and I talk about that in the review, but uh, again, without denigrating the contributions of the authors, I, there are some things that I would like to have seen dealt with a little bit better but um but they're both worth you know they're both uh worth reading i i think ehrman's book is worth reading i i obviously disagree with his conclusions uh but he has a lot of uh he makes a lot of good points and i think again for anybody who's involved in apologetics and wants to be equipped to deal with the kind of fringe uh, pop skepticism uh, arguments of somebody like uh, Richard Carrier, Ehrman's uh, material is is very helpful. And because if I, you know, if I'm talking with a skeptic and and uh, I, you know, refer to a, an evangelical author, uh, they're going to say, well, he has to say that, you know, he's a Christian and he probably, you know, he would get he would lose his job if he didn't say that or something. You uh, can't say that about Bert Ehrman. <laughs> uh, right. You know, he's, he, he, he's not an apologist for the New Testament uh, at all, but he clearly uh, shows that um, much of the fringe uh, pseudo-scholarship about Jesus in the New Testament is flat wrong. Yeah, he's really our, our friend in that aspect. That list you have of, of the things that he affirms is, I mean, that is, that's very telling. It's like you say that really um, that puts to bed the people like Richard Carrier and uh, 
in those those type of well, G.A. Wells, who wrote several books arguing that Jesus didn't exist, and then ended up toward the end saying, "Well, uh, if he did, he wasn't anything like what we find in the New Testament." Uh, because the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus was a real person. And yet there are still people out there. I mean, I, I had a guy insisted that I read this book, which I, I didn't read the whole thing because it was just dumb. Uh, this book argued that Jose- Josephus, the late first century Jewish writer, uh, made up Christianity. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's... That's absurd. Uh, so, you know, some some non-Christian positions are are less absurd than others, and some are more absurd. And, uh, you know, so Ehrman is uh, perhaps uh, more dangerous simply because he is more credible. Uh, Right. Because he is uh, generally level-headed about the facts, uh, because he he knows his stuff, he doesn't say things that are crazy. Uh, He says things I think are wrong, uh, and even culpably wrong, but I, you know he he's he knows what he's doing. He's very smart, uh, and he has thought these things through, and he's careful most of the time to couch things in a way that, it, that at least from his vantage point, is defensible. Uh, so because of that, I think he's more dangerous than a Richard Carrier. He may be, you know, some people may eat up everything Carrier says, but you know. Fifty years from now, uh, those those kinds of uh, writings, those kinds of polemics against Christianity, are not going to be on the radar. They're they're just not significant. Uh, Ehrman stuff is going to be around. Ehrman stuff is going to continue to have an impact because he is uh, so sophisticated and so knowledgeable and and comparatively speaking, so responsible in the way he handles the the facts. But he's putting them together in a way that is clearly leading people uh, to conclude that Christianity is not true. And so he needs to be answered, and he needs to be answered well. And, uh, you know, I think we, we there's more work that could be done than has been done in that. Uh, there's some very good work that has been done, as I've mentioned, but I think that we need to continue uh, to be on the cutting edge of responding to stuff like this because it does confuse people. It does lead people into... Uh, to error and uh, away from the gospel. So I think we yeah, need, we need to answer I th- it. Yeah, I, th- I think the fact you know he he went to Moody and that he went to uh, to Wheaton. I think that gets people's attention. It's like you know this guy sat right. under some of the best. That's that's the novelty of him, I guess. Yeah, well, he he usually weaves into these books, um, not his more academic tomes, but into these books like Misquoting Jesus and How Jesus Became God. He'll weave into them his deconversion story, kind of his testimony of how he became an agnostic. And uh, the media, the mainstream media, love him. Uh, You know, they just ate his stuff up. Uh, I mean... How odd is it to have a New Testament textual critic write a book that is a best-selling book on the New York Times best-selling list and be a guest on national public radio and and all the rest of it? Talk about textual criticism. I mean, you know, most people would, would find that subject very arcane, and he made it very 
popular. And uh, so that's that's the danger, as well as a testament to credit to his own scholarship. But he, he does. He, the reason why he's so popular is because he says, look it, I was one of those fundies. I, right. I held to those. I believed in the inerrancy of the Bible. I defended it. I was an apologist. And uh, he says that in his in this book that he he was into apologetics and the whole bit. And he says I I I, I realized it was all it was it was all smoke and mirrors. And so the media just eat that up. You know, we now we've got a champion who can say I I can defeat. Uh, evangelical or fundamentalist Christianity because I was one of them and I know how they think. Um, The problem is is that what what he abandoned was uh, I think the more extreme form of fundamentalist thought that uh, says and if if there's even one minor picayune error in the Bible that we can't explain you better just throw the whole thing out you know and (laughs) That kind of thing. That's, you know, that's, that's not that's not true. I mean, scientists don't do that. They don't say, "Well, if there's one data point that we can't explain, then we're just going to throw out the whole theory of gravity." You know, <laughs> right? They do that. What they say is, um, "Gee, uh, you know, as in life is messy, and there are things that we don't always understand completely, or uh, test results that don't seem to fit with what we thought was true." and Sometimes there are outliers, things that just don't fit, and they, they, there's somebody made a mistake or something, and uh, we don't know everything, and uh, it does, it's not always neat. And that's true with the Bible. Uh, I think Christians have this idea, if the, word of, if the Bible is the Word of God and it's infallible and inerrant, then our opinions about the Bible should be infallible or inerrant. And that's not true. Uh, we make mistakes. We don't know everything. Some of what we believe is wrong. I guarantee you, some of what I believe is wrong. I, I don't know what it is because I'm fallible, right? <laughs> if I knew what it was, I would change it. But I'm a limited, finite, mortal human being. I don't know everything. Some of what I think I know, I'm sure, is incorrect. I'll find out what that is eventually. Uh, maybe not till the resurrection, but, you know. Uh, and yeah. so I read the Bible and I understand it as best I can. And some of what I believe uh, is is no doubt true, and some of it uh, no doubt is not true. And that, that kind of fallibility and, and partial knowledge is not unbiblical. Paul himself says, we know in part. So I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with understanding that the Bible is absolutely true, my opinions about the Bible are not absolutely true. The Bible it never errs. I do. And so if I find things in the Bible that I don't quite understand or I don't know exactly what the original word was in Romans 5.1 or whatever it is, I'm not going to let that worry me. Uh, now, if, if I had good reason to think Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I'd reject Christianity. Uh, right. You know, but uh, that's not what we're talking about here. And, and Ehrman's attempt to argue in in this book uh, that the belief in Jesus' resurrection was kind of a a pious mistake uh, 
in some ways uh, just doesn't adequately account for the facts. Let me put it that way. Uh, rarely does I th- do I think he plays fast and loose with the facts, although I think there's one or two places where that happens. But really, uh, it, it doesn't add up at the end. Well, I'm, I'm going to be posting this podcast on our, on our Ratio Christie page, and I'm sure you're familiar with Ratio Christie, the apologetics ministry in the, on the college campuses. Maybe talk for a minute to some of the students that are going to go and enter Dr. Ehrman's class or other professors like them. What kind of advice would you give or maybe steps they can do to prepare themselves uh, for some of the challenges they may get when they, when they go to these classes? Well, I, I would uh, urge uh, college students, especially today, uh, Christians who go to college or university, uh, don't be afraid of learning. Don't be afraid uh, of, of growing in your understanding. Uh, don't be, you don't need to be afraid of your uh, atheist professor. Uh, but, and you probably learn a lot from him. But uh, check things out that are being said. Don't simply take the word of the professor for anything. If he's a good professor, he'll, he'll respect that. Uh, he'll respect mm-hmm. the fact that, that you're checking it out, that you're doing your own research, that you're doing your own thinking about the subject. Uh, if you do that and you, you avail yourself of the wealth of good uh, biblical scholarship that evangelicals are producing on a daily basis, uh, you, you know, then, then you're going to be fine. I mean, uh, read a book like uh, Craig uh, Blomberg's new book, uh, can we still believe the Bible, which just that just came out? Uh, or you know, you know, read 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 good books dealing with the subjects that you're uh, you're you're having to uh, to deal with. Uh, so if you are questioning whether you know miracles happen or and whether miracles of, of the Bible are believable, um, you know, Craig Keener's massive two-volume book, Miracles is a tour, tour de force that wow. should lay to rest uh, this question of whether miracles happen. Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, Amen. Miracles are not uh, incredible, uh, you know, superstitious claims. They, there is good, solid evidence that miracles happen. And so, and the objections to miracles are really philosophical not factual. Uh, so if people will do their homework, avail themselves of good scholarship, be willing to amend your views or revise your views uh, on secondary issues. I think this is very important. Many people have this idea, I have to believe everything my pastor told me uh, mm. when I was in church growing up without question. <laughs> Right. That, that's not that's not the case. Uh, your pastor, again, if he's a good pastor, uh, would not feel that way. He would want you to study the Bible for yourself, come to your own conclusions, and he would be comfortable with you saying, you know what, I, I have a different view on this subject. That, that should be fine. Uh, but unfortunately, many people have this idea uh, that Christianity is this uh, take-it-or-leave-it package of beliefs given that's to you that. by your or your Sunday school teacher, and uh, or your denomination, and if you don't accept everything exactly the way that person says it, uh, then you can't be a Christian. 
and and that's yep. that's a a recipe for disaster. It's a it recipe is. For I've, I've seen people faith. leave the faith because of young earth creationism. Young earth creation, and I and I am a young earth creationist, but I you know the the idea that if, if somehow if you if you don't accept young earth creationism, then the Bible is false. Man, what a terrible leap in logic that is. Or uh, right, you know, exactly. You, you uh, if you as you work through the issues of integrating science and scripture, recognize that there are sincere Christians who have done this in different ways. Uh, it's right. not an open case. Uh, Come to your best conclusions based on the evidence that you, uh, as you see it. Be willing to learn from people that you disagree with. And um, be willing to change your views if the evidence demands it. But stick to your guns if you think that's right. You know, and, and uh, I, I uh, you know, I don't want to uh, see young people losing their faith because uh, the particular model of origins that they were taught uh, it doesn't seem to hold up as they study science. Uh, maybe they need to make some uh, changes in their view, or maybe uh, the science hasn't been interpreted correctly. Those are both possibilities. So right. look at those things carefully, think them through, uh, you know, do your homework, know what you're talking about, uh, but don't, don't jettison everything simply because a particular interpretation that you were taught uh, you know, doesn't seem to hold up. Uh, maybe that interpretation needs to go, but not the whole thing. Yeah, and brilliant men on both sides of the issues. Uh, again, I'm thinking of kind of like the young earth, old earth debate. Brilliant men on both sides, you know, so it goes to show you that uh, opposite conclusions, uh, can, of course, both can't be true, but opposite <laughs> conclusions can can be gotten and from, from conservative good scholars. Well, again, so. we're fallible. We're finite. Uh, we come at these things with a certain background and uh, and perceptions and uh, experiences and things that we've read and things we haven't read. Uh, and so we end up coming to different conclusions at times. Now, I think that this issue is an important enough issue. We, we ought to work it through, and uh, we ought to keep talking about it, but hopefully in an amicable and, uh, and uh, civil way. But the stakes are high because... Uh, if you know the if the prevailing view in, in society is one thing and what Christians are saying is another, uh, we better we better take a close look and, and make sure we can defend whatever it is we decide to you know wherever we land in terms of what we believe. We better make sure that we know what we're talking about and right. uh, we're able to defend it. Um, but I really think apologetics not be viewed as defensive in the sense of we're going to just defend our turf in our position without even thinking about it. No, no. Apologetics is we want to know the truth, first of all, for ourselves mm -hmm. and share what we've learned. And if we have to change our views along the way because we learned something new, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I like, I like that a lot. I think that is a much, much, uh, much more thoughtful and uh, intelligent approach to to the issues, but it's hard, you know. We have our pet views, and we don't want to. <laughs> we don't want to be challenged, and we don't want to. We don't want to lose those views. So, take right. thirty seconds, Rob, uh, as we're closing here. Any 
any final words or anything you wanted to kind of any, well any I'd like to encourage to people uh, to check out that review at uh, parchment and pen the blog uh, parchment and pen and also I'd like to invite people to check out the website of the ministry where I work which is the Institute for Religious Research our web address is very simple it's I rr.org that's one i two r's dot o-r-g and we have a lot of resources on the bible jehovah's witnesses and especially mormonism and uh encourage people to take a look at those things and i will i will put a uh link up to the to the blog you wrote as well as your uh your your personal website as well and uh thank you so much uh for coming on you're you're uh one of my heroes of the faith and a real inspiration to me. And it's just been an honor to be able to talk with you and pick your brain and, and uh, sit at your feet and learn. <laughs> well, it's been my pleasure uh, talking with you, and uh, uh, I appreciate the spirit with which you uh, have approached this, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to do it. All right, and we'll uh, look forward to maybe having you on again sometime. That'd be awesome. All right, thanks, Rob. All right, folks, next week uh, we will be back and we will have uh, another edition of Theology Matters. We're going to be looking at some of these, uh, again, uh, theological and uh, apologetic issues. Uh, Like us on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze, facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze, and... uh, and like us. We've got uh, several good shows coming up. On the 14th, we'll have Jacob L. Lee, who's going to do a show on uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the works and the writings of C.S. Lewis. Uh, August 28th, I'm really excited. We're going to have Ken Samples on, and we're going to be looking at his book uh, called Without a Doubt. And, uh, you know, Samples is a, Dr. Samples is a, is a, is a good scholar, and I really enjoy him. So, All right, folks, we look forward to having you again next time. Thanks again to Rob Bowman. Check out Theology Matters at Facebook slash slash, uh, Theology Matters, and uh, be sure to uh, like us and tell your friends about it, and we'll see you next week. God bless. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.